Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Murray McLaughlin is best known for his iconic and timeless hits like Farmer's Song, Whispering Rain, Down by the Henry Moore, and many, many more. And he has a very lengthy and impressive list of accomplishments from 50 years in the spotlight. Well, I'm always more interested in what I'm going to do than what I have done, uh, even though I'm very proud of what I have been able to accomplish over yeah. the years. And, uh, you know, I kind of feel that because I've kind of always gone my own way, uh, I've developed a pretty good following of people who are willing to go along with me, and I'm happy with that. My father was quite accomplished musically, even though he was, uh, in fact, a working man. He was what they called in Great Britain an iron turner. Uh, in okay. the United States or Canada, they would refer to him as a machinist. Mm-hmm. He made precision parts on metal lays and such. Okay. But he was a very talented singer and uh in Scotland, he was a member of uh, a Gilbert and Sullivan Society, and they performed all of the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas well enough that uh, he was invited to go down to uh, London to audition for a theater company. But he decided he didn't want to do that because he felt that being a family man, it was important for him to. That was kind of the thinking at the time. My mother was a colossally terrible violin player, one of the worst I've ever heard. <laughs> And couldn't basically hold a note in a three-gallon bucket, God bless her. But uh, she gave it a, a shot. My origins are solidly working class. Uh, yeah. We were we were a long way from the middle when uh, we emigrated to Canada in 1953. We left on the instigation of my mother because she hated the class system. So my mom knew that her kids who were born in Scotland, myself most of all being the youngest, would likely grow up to be forelock tugging unemployed shipyard workers unless something was done. So uh, she put the furs to my father to emigrate. But wow. the, the business, it was still pretty solidly working class. We spent our first little while in a boarding house before, yeah. uh, you know, before we, my father finally found a house that we could live in. Your early band experiences, you started playing music around Toronto, I assume. And then you said you went to New York for a bit to just check that out. What was that like? That's a a longer story, but I started getting pretty serious about music when I was in art school. Um, I originally wanted to be a visual artist. Hmm. And my idea was that I draw heroic covers of Leaping Bass on the cover of Field and Stream magazine or something. And I went to art school with that idea in mind. But while I was there, I got diverted, I guess you might say, because there were two things going on. One was the really strong emergence of the civil rights movement. And there were uh, writers that were coming out of New York that were doing what you might call a mashup. They were taking kind of traditional folk music forms and writing new and contemporary and meaningful lyrics to them. And of course, those were people like Phil Oakes and Eric Anderson and preeminently Bob Dylan. So I got really wrapped up in what that was all about. And, I, and at some point I went, what? I think I want to do that instead. 
Uh, my brother had brought home a guitar when I was 12 and instructed me not to touch it. And that was all that it took to begin playing the guitar. So by the time I was in art school, I was progressing on that and, uh, and wanted to really do this. So I got my first coffee house gig when I was 15 on uh, Yorkville Avenue for the princely sum of $25 a weekend. Yeah. Wow. And, um, you know, I, it gradually progressed, um, to the point where when I left art school, I didn't want to get a job somewhere. So I hit the road like a hobo, rode freight trains and, you know, picked up jobs, worked in construction, picking oh, fruit, wow. all kinds of stuff. And, uh, did a lot of time on freight trains. And yeah. when I came back to Toronto, I had so much street cred <laughs> yeah. as a folk singer, because I was a genuine hobo. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I, it was easy to sort of be part of the scene. So I started living in the basement of the Village Corner Club and uh, doing a little circuit of gigs and clubs around southern Ontario. Like, anyway, that sort of ran out after a while. Like, it, there wasn't really a living in it, let's put it that way. Yeah. And um, I got really fortunate around that time because. Um, a friend of mine, a guy named Trevor Beach, was playing guitar with an American singer named Tom Rush. And Tom was quite a big star at that point. Trevor introduced me to Tom on the back stairs of the Riverboat Cafe. And Tom asked me to sing him a couple of my songs. So I did. I sang a child song and an old man song. Yeah. Anyway, he decided to record both of them, which was a really big deal. Yeah, big deal. Because uh, he was known for basically discovering recording songwriters for the first time. He was the first person to record Joni Mitchell, James Taylor, oh my. Jackson Brown. So he was, it was quite a big deal for Tom to cut one of their songs or yeah. two of them in my case. So things were not moving a lot in Canada. And uh, my friend, Bernie Finkelstein, who would eventually found True North Records, gave me a piece of advice. He said, uh, you know, it's like that old Hollywood saying, if you want to, be in the movies you should go to where they're making movies so i packed up what little i had and moved down to new york and i established a publishing deal with the albert grossman office because tom was hooked up with them oh nice and i began to be a denizen of the writing room in there with a friend named barry flast and developed a scene in new york to the point where i ended up doing gigs down there played cooper union great hall with some big timers like Theodore Bacall and Oscar Brand. And, uh, yeah. You know, was kind of doing, had, had a bit of a thing going down there. Yeah. And then uh, Bernie Finkelstein and I got in touch again. Um, and he was starting a label, record label. And I had no recording prospects down there in New York. So he said, uh, why don't you come up? I'm, I'm making the first record with this guy named Bruce Coburn. I said, well, I know him. Sure. <laughs> And he's asked if I wanted to get something going. I said, sure. So I came back to Toronto and I got uh, a little apartment in Kensington Market and made the first record. Kensington Market's on the cover. And, uh, you know, sort of the rest, off we went. The interesting thing about Canada that was true then, and I hate to say remains true now, that if folks get wind that you've made a noise somewhere else, they tend to treat you a lot more seriously. And uh, so when I came back from New York, I was suddenly getting invited to parties at Gordon Lightfoot's house. 
Yeah, I think that's a good a good point because you're you, you're you're sort of the local guy, and then you go out and and you mix it up out in the world and come back. It's like, oh, okay, you've done something substantial now that gets you more cred than you would have had otherwise. And of course, you had the other side too, with the you know living the the lifestyle too. Sure, I refer to it as the presence of the hyphen, where you go from oh him to yeah. oh him. So one thing that always strikes me about is categorizing music, you know, and you're kind of all over the place. I mean, it's folk, it's country, you've won country music awards, it's Canadiana, it's adult contemporary, you've even done rock songs, you're a troubadour, you even have a bit of an R&B feel and Storm Morning and stuff. Like, what, what, what is your take on all that? You just do the songs that you feel you should do? You know, I've never really had a plan. Sometimes if I'm in a certain mood, I'll make a certain kind of music, you know, if the mood changes or if the nature of the songs or what I want to write about changes, people put things in silos for marketing reasons. They don't put them in there for artistic reasons. I'm categorized as a folk singer, but I think probably the most accurate category was the one that was sort of people like me or John Prine or, you know, Bruce or, you know, a lot of people. We just were generally James Taylor, too. Like, we're, we're under the ages of the category known as singer-songwriters which is really, that's what we are. I mean, we write our songs and we sing it rather than writing songs and hoping somebody else will sing them. The records that I liked were the records that were really very simply produced. So I, I developed what I call McLaughlin's theory of recording, which is you get some people that can play really well, you put them in a room and you record it. That's it. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, the wild and crazy guy, Frank Soda. And Frank has basically done it all from touring and writing and recording, producing and much more, which we'll get into in our discussion. So thanks for joining me today, Frank. How are you, my friend? I'm doing well. Glad to oh, be here, Dan. I see that you were you were from a small town in, in northern BC. You're from Kitimat. And, and of course, you play music in the small towns. And uh, I was wondering about your, your early sort of learning. Did you just pick up guitar? Did you have lessons or were you mostly self-taught? How did you, how did you get into the guitar? I ended up learning a lot of stuff by ear in the beginning, you know, like, yeah. and then, you know, like, like all of us and, and uh, uh, get bands together and, and uh, someone would show me a, a chord and this and that. But as time went on, I, I actually I had to start to play classical guitar. And I would, uh, when I was uh, touring the, the little pubs and stuff, I, I would just sit in my room and, and try to learn because uh, a friend of mine was playing classical guitar and he had to read. So I, I did that. But as time went on, of course, I dropped a lot of that because, you know, w w once you start playing the, uh, the your regular rock stuff, it's not as as challenging as as, uh, as, as all that classical stuff. So I, I did learn no. it all on my own. I just got books. I got the Berkeley course and I was, you know, upstairs in my room learning my modes and my scales and all that stuff yeah. like that. I met a guy in Smithers, B.C., uh, when I was playing a place called the Devil's Web, and he had he had been playing with like Lenny Bro, who's a monstrous guitar player, and I was kind of doing the finger picking stuff, you know, uh, Jerry Reed and people like that. I was trying to do stuff like that, uh, but like yeah. I say, as my career took off and I started doing the my show and the rock stuff, I could almost do a lot of that stuff just by you know hammering with, with one hand. The, the the other stuff was a lot harder to do, and I just didn't keep up with it. <laughs> It was crazy because how I got to Toronto was a guy named Thor came up from uh, uh, to the chalet in Kitimat to play, and we and we would back up the strippers or we'd back up you know guys like John Thor. He would come yeah. up and he would sing. So he'd say, "Here, here's the tunes I'm doing," and we just back them up, right? 
Yeah. And and he said he always uh he always loved our band. He said, "Listen, I'm going to be going to Toronto blah blah blah, you know, down the road." So uh, a matter of uh, you know, half a year later, I went down to Vancouver and that's when I put the band together to go right to Toronto because he had these connections with I guess Kiss management and people like that. So that's yeah. how I, I ended up into in Toronto. If I would have stayed in BC, I wouldn't have done like a, as much like a, um uh, trying to you know become an original artist or record yeah. and write songs because that's what Toronto made me do. When I first hit Toronto, I, I went there and there was Dominic Triano playing down at Larry's Hideaway, you know, with Progress yeah. John on bass and all these fabulous musicians and 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 your goal was to to kind of play the Elmo Combo, you know, play uh, the Gaswicks, all these places, and you you see these bands and you got to really. You know, you got to put up, you got to, you know, do your cover stuff, but then you got to come up and with your own stuff, you know, and that's yeah. what all the bands were doing there. So I think it was a great learning thing for me too, moving to Toronto. So then just about the name, the Imps, I guess that uh, Thor gave you that name because he was so huge and you guys were smaller than him. Was that what the deal was? That's exactly right. You hit the nail on the head. Well, you know, he had a really wild show, which of course then I I, had, I developed my own show later, which kind of yes. you know took over stuff. But uh, he 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 used to pick me up with one hand. I mean, literally, and yeah. lift me up in in the air back in those days, you know, and and take me out in the audience to to play because you know he was he was a, he had he had a, a wild show, and because of his size, and we were all about the same size, like you know five feet nothing, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> the show aspect was always a big thing for you because you had lots of antics in your live show, right? Quirky antics and quirky tunes. You were just different. Like you just, <laughs> it was just different. The ironic thing is, is that I, I always started, uh, I, I always thought the imps were, were three good musicians. Like, you know, that, that we, we were always upstairs, like, uh, uh, working on our, 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 our guitar playing or bass playing or yeah. drumming and stuff. We, we were doing stuff like that. And, and then we tried to write songs and a lot of the stuff that that came out, like with the the television exploding television on my head and things like that, actually came out of a song. I had a song called "TV yeah. People," that yeah. that uh, uh, you know about getting brainwashed. And then we would joke around and say, "Yeah, it wouldn't be funny to put something like that on your head and blow it up," you know. So that's <laughs> how, that's how a lot of the gimmicks got got uh, you know. Yeah, uh, it, it, they 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 came uh, when uh, when I was uh, thinking of a song. Yeah. You know? Well, people loved it. I mean, it was very well known. Everybody knew about it. Even even out in Vancouver, you know, we we everyone knew who Frank Soto was because it was you know he was the guy that had the head exploding and the, of course the Moon Man and the Smoking Pig and all that. I mean, it, people knew about it. Well, the thing is, is that what what I learned from playing with John is that it uh, you know, it grabs people's attention. You know, I mean, some I mean later on it kind of maybe takes over too much. And then the, your, you know, your, your musical part kind of sort of suffers. I would have liked to have done say more recording, but once you got this big show on the road, you, and you know as well as I do, you got a road crew and you got this. Oh yeah, know, yeah. You got to yeah. keep it going. Well, you know, it it, it kind of uh, it limits stuff. You know, uh, as, as far as like you know, getting into the studio and maybe developing new ideas and things like that then you had made the comment that that some of that stuff was hard to capture on the record right like the record didn't necessarily capture the energy and the excitement of of what you did live i hated all my recordings i really did yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i look back and and uh, i remember doing that that first album we we had toured and i just talked to charlie towers my the original bass player for the imps i keep in touch with him all the time and he says 
we used to tour like sometimes up to 48, you know, uh, 48 weeks out of the year, you know, yeah. uh, it was crazy. But we came back down from a tour and we went, I'll never forget this. We went to a, a, a studio that my manager, Bob Conley booked it's called Master's Workshop. They mainly did uh, religious stuff there, but yeah. we went there and uh, <laughs> and we recorded the, the the first album there. But it was, I think, we did all the bed tracks like one or two days, just boom, you know. Yeah. And yeah. and 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 it was really kind of a, a real uh, fast production type of stuff back in those days. Then we're back on the road again, you know. I was just the guy that I used to plug in and play, turn my amp up, you know. I had one, you know, clean sound, one dirty, and one overdrive, and that that's basically what I used to do, and that's it. Yeah. The best thing for me w- would be almost the first couple of takes to yeah. me. And then you get someone analyzing it and saying, well, you know what? You can do this and you can do that and blah, 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 you know. And I, <laughs> I find that I actually got worse. I was lucky to be able to do my own songs yeah. uh, and be able to, to do it so that w- w- when, when I go out there and play, I mean, if I make a mistake, I mean, it's my song. I always thought that... Frank Soda was your stage name, but your your name is Francesco Soda. Is that Francesco Soda in in Italy, Mangoni? Years, you know. Many yeah, well, years ago. <laughs> that's so funny because I, I I did not realize that. I always thought that that was a stage name, and that yeah. you picked it. And then, of course, you used the soda pop and all that stuff. He used it as a as a part of your gimmick or part of your shtick, right? Well. So. I- that is that's the, the funny thing is is that what when we were playing uh, with with the imps right quality records came out oh, we, we got to sign the band and and we did some demos and blah 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 and all that right you know and then uh w- when we went to play for do, to do our, our our second album uh um w- what happened was the first one was was the imps i believe you know and then then they said, well, we, we, we like that name, like uh, that, that, that name that your guitar player uses, you know. Th- they didn't think it was my real name either. Yeah, there that, you go. <laughs> that, 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 That's how that went, you know. They, they didn't know either. But we used it, you know, like I said, they, they made a big promo thing out of it with the pop cans. And they, yeah. They hung them all across Canada and little displays and all that stuff, you know. I had a uh, five-album deal signed with, with, with Quality Records. So, so we ended up doing the first one. It was called, uh, like you said, Soda Pop because okay. of, they loved the uh, the soda name and everything else. And uh, and then the second one uh, was called the Saturday Night Getaway, and we still yeah. and we still had uh, three more album deal to do with yeah. them, but they they ended up they, they were going bankrupt at that time. So I was there at the wrong place at the wrong time, you know. Then then oh, okay. I kind of lost the support. They were going bankrupt in there, so I only did the two albums. At the same time, I was doing that. I, I did the the Lee Aaron album with, uh, with with that Lee Aaron project. That was a part of that because my manager was managing uh, her. Okay, but yeah. but the quality of records thing it did I did not get to do all of of, of the of the um, the oh. other two or three albums. The Imps were just going through a bit of a, an internal kind of thing. We we had been on the road a long time, and then. And then everyone was getting kind of like, you know, hey, we got to start making more money and this and that. Yeah. So, you know, we laugh about it now, you know. High Time was, was a, you know, it's a, it's a great song to just throw together live. It was, it just felt right, you know, like that, that, that stuff comes so easy. I, I enjoyed yeah. doing that. And I wish, I wish I, I would have done a lot more of that, you know. Yeah. What sacrifices did you make along the way? you know, for your music career, do, do you think it was worth the sacrifices you made, the traveling, the, you know, maybe the, 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 just the sacrifices that you had to make with your time and your money and, and that sort of thing? You think it was worth it? 
Well, burning my hair off and my eyelashes, yes. they'll never grow back. I did, I did <laughs> see that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that's the sacrifice. Henry Small is an extraordinary vocalist and entertainer who has rubbed shoulders and worked with some of the top rock musicians in the world, including Burton Cummings, of course, and John Entwistle from The Who. His list of credits is enormous over the span of his career, one that most musicians could only dream of. It includes Scrubble O'Kane, Small Wonder, Prism, and various other solo projects. Henry also owned and operated a world-class studio, Small World Studio, been a morning radio host, and has also continued to record his own music and do shows with his various projects. I always ask musicians, you know, what was your sort of defining moment? Where, where did you sort of, at that point in your life where you thought, you know, I can actually make a living at this, I can actually do something with that. What, what was your defining moment when you decided to become a, a full-time entertainer? I was in college, I was in music school, yeah. and uh, we started a band. Uh, I, well, I started singing in a dormitory with a, a guy that was playing guitar. I heard him playing guitar all the time, and you know he loved uh, the Beatles, and he loved R&B, and he loved uh, the same kind of music that I, that I loved. I had never sung before, hmm. um, so we used to sit around the dormitory and he'd play these songs and I'd sing along with him and slowly but surely the other guys in the dorm would come around and say, hey, that sounds great and blah, blah, blah. And, and it was encouraging to start a band, which we did. Yeah. Um, and then I started to get paid for it. And I can remember uh, we were playing a fraternity party and I got paid $15 for singing yeah. and having... Uh, you know, I, I think well, all male musicians probably would say the same thing, started to get attention from females. <laughs> so, you know, the money and playing the music and then attention from females, it was kind of like a no-brainer for me. After Gainesville Gallery, there was Cannonball. There was a couple of different uh, variations on the same theme. Uh, I hooked up with Paul Dean, yeah. uh, and he... You know, I always loved Paul's playing, and um, he kind of went through a couple of different bands with me, and then um, friends from Vancouver got a hold of us, and Al Foreman, and, and uh, Jimmy Harmata, and Bob Kidd, and, and we put together this thing in Calgary, and one of the guys knew some owners in Quebec City who had a nightclub, and so we basically put it together in Calgary, and then... Uh, went to Quebec City uh, for a two-week engagement, which turned into seven months. Oh, wow. And, yeah, it's seven nights a week plus uh, six-hour nights, uh, yeah. seven nights a week plus a matinee on Sunday along with a Sunday wow. night performance. Yeah. So by the time we were done with that, we were pretty damn good, pretty tight. And uh, it was, you know, looking back, um, probably – the most exciting and dynamic live act I've ever been part of. When I listen to Scrubble O'Kane stuff, it's really cool. Like in your voice too, you got a little bit of a rasp in your voice and songs like Do I Love You and stuff are pretty funky and cool. And and then some of the other stuff is almost country, Southern rock. It, it was a mixed bag. And and uh, God, it was, my, it was my musical school. I yeah. mean, I learned about groove. I learned about different styles of music. As far as singing was concerned in those days, I didn't have a, uh, I just let loose. Whatever it was, I just let loose. Oh. Probably when I listen to it now, like a little too much maybe. But. Oh, it sounds good. I, I, yeah, it was, um, 
and like Winnipeg it. became uh, Winnipeg became for Scrubbleo anyway became a real uh, center for us after Quebec City and and the guess who manager at the time was Don Hunter and he took us to Winnipeg and uh, we got a deal with RCA and you know yeah. recorded and 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 that took its its course. So why didn't that band do more? Like you eventually just you did the album. And then you did a bit more recording, and then it just kind of dissolved from there. Yeah, it. it um, you know, we were quite popular in in Manitoba and Ontario, and in Quebec, yeah. and uh, you know we had a wonderful run. And then we did the album, and nobody was really happy with the album. The tempos were too uh, too fast, and and nobody was really happy with it. And then. Al decided he wanted to be a songwriter, and he left. And we continued on for a little after that, but basically uh, everybody went their own way. So when Scrubble O'Kane sort of packed it in, you had Small Wonder for a bit there, and you did you did an album, and yeah, we did a couple albums. We uh, I had a, a keyboard player from uh, my college town in upstate New York, which was about ten miles from the Canadian border. Uh, Jimmy Phillips, who is a great, great musician, yeah. uh, still is a great musician, and uh, he 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 came up with another guy, Jerry Morin, who played uh, guitar and bass, and uh, and we put this band together that musically was was very good. It wasn't as earthy as uh, Scrollo was, but you know. Um, it seemed to to work well. We ended up playing in Massey Hall, opening for Jeff Beck. Nice. And yeah, which was a great. I mean, Jeff Beck's my favorite. But yeah. um, we and this guy came backstage and said, uh, you know, I want to take you to to Hollywood. And and I started laughing in his face, and I thought, yeah, I've heard this shit before. Right? Yeah. It's kind of, um, but anyway, it turned out to be Joe Wizard, who at the time was a producer for Boss Gags and Earth, Wind and Fire wow. and Ellen Reddy. And and so we thought, oh, wow, this guy's for real. Yeah. We ended up uh, uh, going down to L.A. and and recorded a couple albums that basically didn't do much. But, you know, we got to be on Midnight Special. Yeah, well, that was cool. Uh, you know, in those days, Midnight Special was like that's that was the highlight of your life. Yeah. You know, and I can I laugh about it because I remember we had to go there early in the morning, and uh, the work guys, the setup guys, were asking me how to spell Small Wonder and put the lights together behind us while they were drinking coffee and eating donuts. Yeah. And <laughs> there was no audience; it was just. Uh, these four or five guys sitting there looking at you like uh, like you had a stain on your pants or something. Oh yeah. And uh, uh, and we played live, and and then they would edit in the crowd later. Oh. And, you know. Okay. So it, it wasn't quite what I expected. Yeah, it's funny how that artificial environment, like they they um, they pre-tape it, right? So you act like yes. everything's great, and the crowd's pumping and everything, and you're playing to the guy having a coffee and a donut. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that was it. That's, I remember thinking to myself, "So this is show business." Hello, yeah. Then the the prism thing came along. Yeah, it, like it was. Uh, uh, they actually, Ron left the band, 
and I they were looking for a singer because they hadn't broken the states. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Paul Dean recommended me to Bruce Allen, and I was down in Santa Monica, and I uh, at that time was breaking into studio stuff and and you know making my way in Los Angeles and. Yeah. And they, you know, Bruce called me and he said, oh, we got, you know, Prism and, and uh, would you be interested in, in, in joining it? And, and you know, I at first was hesitant because I hadn't been a real follower of Prism. Uh, but, um, you know, they had a record deal. They had a track record. And I thought, okay, well, let's, let's see what it is. And, and so I went up and... And played with him for a while, and uh, yeah, and that, and then we went down to L.A. At that time, I mean, I had no real say in anything. I just kind of did uh, what I was asked to do, and we had success down there. Yeah. So, um, yeah. you know, the second album came out, and uh, we didn't have success anymore. And uh, but that's a story too. I mean, we were getting ready for the. Uh, tour to tour behind the second album because yeah. the first one had been you know had gone gold down in the states and whatever and and I remember the day we you know had a great band together and we were getting ready to go and we already had a lot of airplay in the east and without any promotion and uh, Bruce came in and said uh, canceling everything oh and I was like what and he said yeah we're canceling everything. He had a fallout with the president of Capitol or whatever, and and that was the end of that. For for someone like yourself, you're you're trying all these different uh, projects and trying to find something that works, and getting to the point where most people would never get. I mean, you've had a career that that most musicians would never. I mean, I've made a living for the last four decades playing music, but I I wouldn't have. Uh, sacrificed, I guess, what I would have had to sacrifice or had the opportunity to do some of those things. So, but you've gone places that most musicians never get to go. So, yeah, now, now I see that, Dan, and I look at my life as pretty colorful and, and, and I'm very grateful for all the different experiences. It didn't turn out for me the way that I had always wanted it to, yeah. but that's not what life is about. Life is about you you are given certain tools and you go out and, and you do your best. And uh, I always looked at these things as failures, but really in the long run, just wonderful. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Howie Vickers, the singer for the popular 1960s band, The Collectors. Howie had a high profile for a time in The Collectors and then left to pursue other interests, both inside and outside the music business. In our discussion, we'll get into some insights about life in the music biz back then, as well as touring and writing and recording, and why he chose a different path. You were billed as a TV star. Oh. TV uh, star Howie Vickers. Well, I'm not, yeah, the, the TV star thing, I, I have no idea. I, yeah, I did some TV and all that stuff. Yeah, the star part, I, yeah. No. That was good. So I was curious about your early interest. Like like some guys just sort of fall into the music business and other guys have training and stuff. Like were, you a, were you a trained singer or did you just think it was cool to sing in a band? No, I, 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 um, I was drawn to it when I was, when I was a little kid. And I think there's some of us that that happens to, it wasn't a choice even, it was just something that was there that, that was in me. And, and, uh, it was like a magnet or whatever that, that just drew me to music. I just loved it from the time I was, uh, as far back as I can 
remember. And regarding training, I, I uh, at 11 years old, I was in the Vancouver Junior Band, Gordon Olson's uh, uh, group. And I, I did that for uh, until I was about 16 or so, nice. I think. And um, so, so that was, uh, I played, uh, <laughs> I played tuba and I played trom- trombone in, in, uh, in that. So I had, uh, you know, I got some music training in that sense, but it wasn't like piano lessons or, you know, that type of thing. Right. But uh, that was my first experience with, with music, and, and it was an enormous learning experience. I saw what discipline and, and applying yourself, et cetera, et cetera, was, was, was about. And that's mostly looking back. I mean, I you know, didn't think of that at the time. And no. the other thing I got from that was uh, we toured. It was a co-ed band. So uh, we were a concert slash marching, marching band. Uh, we toured uh, through North America. So when I was four, no, when I was 12 uh, in 54, uh, we toured across Canada uh, to Winnipeg and down into the States, Chicago and, uh, and New York and, and back through the, the Midwest. So two months. And a lot of it was billeted in people's houses, that type of thing. And, and so in terms of a learning experience, again, it was just at that age being being on the road, as it were, uh, yeah. and all that that entailed. Again, I look back on it and, and I learned I, I learned a lot of things. I got pulled into a, a, a band. Um, God, I think they were called the Chimes, and that might have been through Les Vogt, actually. And as a matter of fact, the the group that I got pulled into, uh, we opened for Roy Orbison at the Gardens the first time that uh, Roy played here. Les wow. booked him in. So Did you get was... to meet him and hang? Oh out yeah, with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, uh, Bobby Goldsboro was his rhythm guitar player. We auditioned for uh, what was a, a, they were just it was initially going to be a summer show on CBC called. Let's go, and right, uh, we yeah. auditioned for that and got the uh, got the gig. So uh, we were the house band uh, on on uh, what became uh, in the fall uh, a national show. Yeah, no, I remember that well. And then you were called the Classics on that show, right? With Tom, yeah. Bear, Claire Lawrence, and Glenn Miller, and you. Yeah, and Gary Taylor. Yeah, exactly. And Gary Taylor. Yeah, yeah, we were a six piece group there. So you did a bunch of cover tunes, but you also threw in your own songs as well. Is that the deal? Well, uh, yeah, we, we yeah we did we did uh, a few other records as the classics. After Tom left, we did we did a couple as well singles. Yeah. Um, we we ended up on Valiant Records uh, at at that point out of L.A. Okay, and that was part of our journey. Uh, became part of our journey with the uh, collect collectors actually. Claire Lawrence, uh, Glenn Miller, and I, we added uh, Bill Henderson and Ross yeah. Turney, the drummer. What, he, he had the house gig at the Torch, Jim Wisby's Torch. And we ended, we en- became the house uh, group uh, there. And that was the start of the collectors. We, we were playing, you know, you, you, it was a bottle club, as they called them back then. So it was people bringing their bottles, getting really, <laughs> really yeah. juiced and dancing. <laughs> Back then it was booze and a band, basically. You had music, yeah. you had yeah. drinks. Well, yeah. I mean, there was only, at that time, it, it, it was about to change uh, through the, just past the mid-60s, I guess. But it was what were called bottle clubs. So people, there was a shelf underneath your table and you brought your 26 a lot of times and, <laughs> and uh, drank way too much. Yeah. Uh, and had a way too much fun, and uh, yeah. 
So there was a lot of work for, for you know, each each club would, ha- would have bands. Yeah. 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 So one thing I'm curious about, because lots of club bands play clubs and they never graduate sort of beyond that, right? They become club bands. And I think that's probably the, the, the rule rather than the exception. And then a few bands emerge out of those clubs with some songs that have some success. And you were one of those bands. And so I was curious about that. Like you had Looking at Baby and, and you landed a record deal. I mean... Yeah, was well, th- there was a fellow, uh, Jack Hershorn is his name. He became our manager, but okay. he was in Vancouver. He was from uh, he was from California, actually. Anyway, he was here and and heard about us, I guess, through the grapevine. However, and actually, looking at a baby, we wrote. Uh, uh, Bill and I uh, wrote uh, while the band was on a break. I had the lyrics, and and uh, we put it together. They came back from a lunch break that they were on, and. And we had it written, and uh, we started working on it, and uh, that was our first, our first single. And so Jack got it to back to Valiant Records. He got it to Valiant Records. Records. Um, we went down to LA, and and we we, we had done demos up here that, okay. that that we had sent down, or Jack had got them down to them. And uh, uh, that was one of the songs they picked. So we did that, and uh, we went down and uh, rec- recorded that in uh, one night, uh, had an overnight session at Columbia Studio D at Columbia. The record was about to come out after we'd done it. The record was about to come out. We still, they didn't have a name for it. We didn't have a name. We were just the Torch Band or whatever. Okay. Uh, so they gave us a list. And uh, Collectors was the only one we could collectively, as it were, no pun intended, agree, yeah. agree on. And uh, so that's where that came from. Yeah. And, and then your Collectors album, I mean, it's it's almost like a concept album looking back on it, right? It's very psychedelic sort of sound. And how did you describe yourselves? Is that what you were trying to do? Like the Haight-Ashbury, the, the San Francisco sound, is that what you were looking for? Well, well, our band, see, the, looking back on it, it, it the eclectic uh, mix, if you will, of of, of influences, etc., was 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 there. Uh, a lot of the bands that were playing uh, came out of blues roots, or or mostly that, you know. Um, yeah. So we didn't have that. Like Bill, Bill, what certainly wasn't from that. Uh, Clara came, if anything, from more of a jazz, well, very much a jazz background. Yeah. I came from probably. A, R&B influence uh, very much. Uh, Glenn, our bass, Glenn Miller uh, was was a, he 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 played a lot of different stuff. So we, we were bringing a kind of a, a real mix to what we were doing, and it, it, it we weren't in a musical environment that lent itself to to uh, where you're doing top forty kind of stuff or whatever, right. you know. Interestingly, so you had all these experiences. You were living the life, basically doing what you know most other people set out to do, and then you ended up walking away from it. In my case, it was just uh, I had a, a, a wife, son at that time, and uh, you know it it, it it wasn't glamorous any of it, yeah. uh, no matter how it seemed to be from the outside. But uh, and I I just uh, yeah, it was it was time to uh, to not do that. I I was already kind of on the periphery of of, uh, of the the commercial business, uh, you know, doing jingles and stuff. Right. And and I uh, was freelancing vocally doing that. Uh, I, so I continued to to do that because that that business was really was really starting to to happen. Yeah. And the 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 partners that were the 
headed up the biggest company, Griffiths Gibson Ramsey, where where uh, we'd all we were all friends, and we'd worked together uh, in some on some of the TV stuff. Yeah. So we we uh, we had a working and and friend relationship, and uh, yeah. I got pulled into that. But well, it's at- interesting because I, I was going to ask you about why you left. I mean, the collectors was everything that you know an aspiring person would want to have right you got the record deal you're touring you're doing it but then again you know was it was it internal sort of in internal issues with the band or was it just you didn't want to chase because you got to chase hit songs right you've got to chase well, that internal i i don't know I, yeah i, I there, there's always internal stuff with with bands of any kind but part of it too looking back is bill was coming on as as a, a viable and, and god knows he ended up being uh yeah. the, the replacing uh, the, uh, me as a lead singer um, ironically, the first record we did, uh, looking at a baby, well, that's mo- both me and Bill singing it like in a question and answer form. Okay, that's yeah, how the yeah. lyrics work, right? Um, so that that's what came to be. Really, was that we had two lead singers, as it were, and uh, okay, um, it it just in hindsight, it was yeah, it worked for everybody in the sense that uh, I went on to uh, uh, have have a, a a pretty viable career. Uh, yeah, af- after the fact. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.